District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. Hi, everyone. I have a special Thursday episode with Cody McLaughlin, past guest of the show, and someone we're going to frequently lean on and bring back occasionally, maybe once a month, to talk about some trending topics and bring on some other people to chime in on what is happening. But Cody wanted to talk briefly about the oft-talked-about controversial meat-eater op-ed entitled The Case Against Hunter Recruitment. And actually, since that piece has come out, authored by Stephen Ranella's brother, Mr. Ranella himself offered some clarity, likely maybe due to some pressure from people threatening to pull sponsorship or something of that nature. And we recorded this conversation before the op-ed came out last night. I'll include the I'll include Stephen Ranella's piece for you guys to read, but Cody and I digest kind of the faulty arguments with the piece. Obviously not a cancellation of them whatsoever, not arguing that we're allowed to have debate, they're allowed to have debate too, but we talk at length about what it means, and I think this is the last time I'll mention or reference this because it is kind of getting old and there are far greater battles to wage rather than to give attention to people who want to limit opportunities for new hunters. So here's Cody and I talking about this and previewing some upcoming collaborative episodes in the coming weeks. Hey everyone, we are revisited by my friend and I would say probably the most visited guest of District of Conservation after my dad, uh, Cody McLaughlin, who is joining us from Alaska, where he has since relocated and he's loving it. And uh, we're going to talk about a few interesting trends happening and Cody, why don't you tell us how you're doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for uh, having me back on. Uh, I think this is the first time I've been on since actually coming to Alaska. Has um, it so really been that? I thought I had you on once. Uh, I, no, I think I was on right before I left Jersey. I see. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great out here. There's um, uh, moose everywhere all over my yard and stuff. Uh, I, uh, I actually had a crack at a 25-inch Arctic char, which um, got off right before I pulled it up out of the ice. Oh, so, no. Yeah, I'm going back out next Tuesday, though, so ah. fingers, fingers crossed. Yes, I will be sending good vibes your way. They are beautiful. Oh, my gosh, the coloring of Arctic char yeah. is beautiful. And they're like trout um, in, in many cases, right? I, I think they are like trout. I know they are yeah. like trout. Yeah, they're a salmon, um, and they look just like trout. They look like a pumpkin i i think of them as a pumpkin flavored trout pumpkin flavored trout <laughs> but yeah in alaska now you can fish for them so consider yourself lucky oh yeah grayling uh arctic char salmon i'm gonna be in my glory this year yes and if i can find my way to alaska i will take you up on your offer like i've said because the tickets are okay they went up 200 bucks believe it or not. But I think more people are now domestically traveling and Alaska doesn't have that um, two week quarantine period like they did at the height of the pandemic or near new adopted state. So yeah, I, I think it's a little well, easier to travel. It's funny because uh, I uh, actually had that, um, had to do that when oh, I did you? got here and then they dropped it like a week after I got here. Uh, and I was like, yeah, see, that's ridiculous, but you know. <laughs> Well, it was cold anyways, and you you wanted to bundle up and stay warm, so maybe it wasn't as bad as 
as uh, you thought it would be, but you've been there now for how long? Uh, to Wasilla. January 15th. Okay. So I've been here for just over two months now. Hmm. Very good. Do you miss the lower 48? Do you miss New Jersey? Not at all. Okay. I got it. <laughs> Listen, the only thing I really miss is turkey season. Um, that's coming up. I'm a little excited about that. And then like the striper and shad bite are happening right now back home. People keep texting me pictures and I'm like, listen, guys, um, <clears throat> just because I'm not much of a hard water fisherman, um, you guys are, should really enjoy this like moment of one up on me because every single one of you that is sending me photos bragging about getting ready for turkey season and stuff. Just wait, because I'm going to be rubbing it right back in your face in a, in a, in a few weeks. <laughs> well, I think you could forgo having turkeys for, I don't know, moose <laughs> and some big game animals that you would not find in the lower 48 yeah. as much um, or more scarcely you would find in the lower 48 unless you went to like the Midwestern or Northeastern states. Um, so no, you sh it's, it's an okay trade-off. You shouldn't feel bad. Yeah, totally. Why don't we get started with talking about this buzzing article? And then I think after this, we won't talk about the subject that much, but the meat eater article and the response generated by outdoor life, I actually just spoke to the editor. One of the editors featured someone I've worked with in the past, um, Jerry Beth G to talk about their reasoning behind it. And their goal was not to be divisive in responding to meat eater, but why don't we talk about the actual meat eater piece a little bit? And I think people, I mean, you have to read through the entire piece, obviously give them deference, whatever. And I recall in the kind of disclaimer prefacing the piece. So, um, the following opinion piece is written by my brother, Matt Ranella. He's a research oncologist who has devoted his life equally to hunting and conservation. You may have seen him on old episodes of Meat Eater or listened to him on more recent episodes of the podcast, dot, 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 dot. I don't want to see hunters suffer more su suffer the legislative setbacks that have plagued states like New Jersey and California where hunting rights have been stripped away at alarming rates. In turn, Matt has argued that, well, you'll hear it straight from him below. As with many issues, I see both sides of this one, but I find myself leaning more and more in Matt's direction all the time on this. So I'm thinking he's starting to become against hunter recruitment. I don't think so because his whole media empire bringing in new people, bringing in celebrities, hunting and talking to celebrities is pretty much like an R3 embrace. I don't know. Um, but your initial impressions of the case against hunter recruitment and what your initial thoughts were when reading oh this. I nearly dropped my phone when I was reading it um, because I just, <laughs> it made no sense from a meat eater standpoint, made no sense from a, like, from a hunter standpoint. I mean, it just, and, and frankly, the whole article just reeked of sour grapes because, you know, Matt had a bad season or something. Like, hmm. I don't understand what, what would possess two guys who, who've done a lot of, whether indirectly or not, you know, Matt's been on the show um, and Matt's even talked about hunter recruitment on the show and like how we need to get more people into the outdoors. So like where someone would get off, you know, a couple of years later saying that is just, I mean, mind boggling to me. And then, you know, you get to the, you get down to the brass tacks and it's like, what are you, 
really advocating for at this point. Like, in my opinion, and this is a totally personal opinion, you know, that I don't think should be necessarily reflective of the show, but like, in my personal opinion, like, meat eaters strayed hugely from their mandate. I mean, uh, yeah, and this is not a, the first uh, time even with, with them. So, um, uh, meat eater, you know, they're, uh, they're, um, Yanis Patelis, the, uh, the producer, he, he's been quoted in, uh, in Montana publications advocating for, um, for a lottery draw permit in order to use rivers. So like all kinds of just ridiculous patently, patently ridiculous stuff has been kind of coming out of there in the last year or two since they were bought by the turning group. And it's just, it's really disappointing because, you know, I, I know I'm not alone when I say that. Um, that that a lot of that the mediator brand really did inspire a lot more you know interest or pride in the outdoors um, and you know seeing them stray stray like this into act what's now actively advocating for an old boys club approach to hunting and fishing is just really just sad. Yeah, because I don't consume the show by any means. I do read the articles and I have seen Ranella on different things. And I largely agree with him. And obviously this is his brother we're referring to, uh, who is the author of this piece. So I think Stephen probably largely agrees with R3, but his brother, um, writing essentially this. So he apparently takes great issue with recruitment, retention, reactivation. You and I have heard about this. Our mutual friend Cyrus helped pilot a lot of R3 programs, uh, help get the communications for that off the ground. He educated us about it. He's educated many people about it. And he takes the issue that says that the movement seeks to achieve its objectives using slick marketing campaigns, print advertising, and free how-to courses and mentorship programs that pair experienced hunters with newbies. And this is the kicker, which a lot of people took issue with, I'm reading in the article. And this is from Matt Ronella, And he says, I'm an outdoorsman who craves solitude, yet my hunting spots get more crowded every year. That, in a nutshell, is why I'm leery of R3. Now, have you ever heard the issue of there is too many hunter uh, heard the issue that there are too many hunters crowding public lands or private lands? I mean, to me, even though I'm new to all this hunting, not fishing, I've been fishing much of my life. A lot of people forget that or don't know that. Um, but, but the hunting component, I have never actually seen that in all my travails outside or all my experiences outside going hunting. Have you, is that really our problem? We have too many people hunting. Well, listen, anybody who's ever had a bad season will tell you that, you know, there's too much pressure, blah, 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 you know, and that's usually some form of excuse, like the wind mm -hmm. took my arrow or my line, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, let's get down the brass tacks. Some of the, yes, there are some, there are a lot more hunters than there, are, than there were, right? And there's been a lot more development than there has been, but the vast majority of states haven't actually lost any amount of public land to um to you know development now a lot of private land that was previously um uh huntable is no longer really huntable and that's for a number of different reasons but the, but the question of mine is where in my mind is where are the game animals right so there are <clears throat> unprecedented and growing levels of every almost every type of game animal you know, you can make the argument that maybe caribou, certain certain pockets of moose, some pockets of elk, 
are struggling. Anything else, and you're not going to convince me or any other rational human being that that there's somehow less of them because there's more hunters. As a matter of fact, all those all those populations are growing. New Jersey, for instance, is reporting four to ten times amount the amount of um, of deer per square mile as a carrying capacity. We've talked at length about the black bear um, in New Jersey, and that's not the only state with huge black bear overpopulations. Um, you know, uh, along the along the archipelago uh, here in Alaska, um, there's huge amounts of sick and blacktail deer. Even some of them are considered over overcapacity and causing things like car accidents and stuff. So, like, I just I, I fail to see where the math comes in. You know that that someone's struggling just because other people are hunting that same land. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and w- especially out West where Matt Rennell is located, there's huge tracts of public land. Some of which has never been set foot on by a human being, right? That you could, that you could hunt. Now, if you, if you're hunting within a mile of a road in any state, right? you're probably going to run into other people. Okay. And that's just because it's the most convenient, quick place to go hunt, period. Um, that's nobody's fault. Um, and it's, you know, complaining about that is just, is just sour grapes in my opinion, because, you know, they, those people have as much right to, to that land as you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it's just, it's the, it's at the point now where like, if you, if the early bird gets the worm, uh, routine, you know, if you want to go to a place where nobody else is, you're going to have to go to a place where nobody else is. It's that simple. Yeah, there's plenty of spaces to to go fishing or hunting. I mean, there's no shortage of it. I think so many people, in my experience, it's amazing to me. This is separate from hunting and fishing, but still nature related. But you talk to anyone on the East Coast, a good chunk of people, and I am really surprised by how many people have never been to Yellowstone National Park, Grand Teton, all the like iconic national parks, some of the early ones, early established ones out West. And that's probably because I'm from the West Coast originally and I got to go on vacations and my family did that. And obviously a majority of the country goes to Disneyland versus national parks, I think in a, in a purely objective uh, kind of look into all that. But it's there are very few people, I would say, I wouldn't say 50% of the country goes outdoors. I don't know how we can quantify that. I mean, we have a very big economic output for sure as an industry, but that includes hiking, biking, fishing, hunting, camping, and many other different things cumulatively. But you really, apart from like people going on trails, like easy walking paths, like it is really easy to find privacy even on private or public lands, um, especially even public waters and public lands um, with respect to fishing opportunities. I've never had an issue where I've had to like fight for a spot on a public waterway (laughs) in my experience uh, fishing for so many years and for hunting. I mean, for me, and we've talked about this before, like I have no issue public land hunting. I just don't know how to do it by myself. I'm not comfortable at that point yet to do it. I like going with other people and close to me, it's a little harder to do it because I know the spaces are in demand. Although I have done public duck hunting, obviously, since I've hunted on a wildlife management area on the North Carolina border. 
and Virginia border. Um, so it's a matter of preference, of course, but I, I don't know if this is because this guy had a very bad season. I think it could be maybe these people think because they've accrued all this power as a media empire. So they have largely gone on challenge and it's, you know, it's okay to criticize them. It's not like you criticize them. You hate them. No, by no means. But do you think it's because they've become such an established entity, really not subjected to a lot of criticism and maybe there's fear behind criticizing them? I wouldn't say it's a bad hunting season. Maybe it's this get off my lawn type of thing perspective. What do you think it is? Like, is it to generate clicks? Is it part of their arrangement with their private equity firm that acquired them? I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't use so much that as a cudgel. Um, I know the the political leanings of their investor. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but they say, well, we largely depart from what he agrees with or what he espouses. Um, so I don't know if I can quantify it as politics, but I think it's kind of the criticism you sometimes see with public land absolutists. And that doesn't mean criticizing them as public land absolutists means you believe public land should be sold to the highest bidder. But I think um, there is somewhat of a, I would say, echo chamber sometimes in some of the public land purity circles where you can't deviate. And that's problematic. I think you should hunt and fish everything, all of the above, doesn't matter what type of tract of land it is, private or public, as long as you're doing it ethically and legally, no problems. That was a lot to unpack, but what do you think? So um, it's hard to assign um, motivation. All I can do is inference um, based on kind of what I read and my own experience and discussions with people of similar mindset. And I got to say that the inference that it gave to me is just what I said that, you know, that they're, it just sounded like sour, like directionless sour grapes because of a bad season. And it's like, it's, it's a shame, you know, because I mean, think of the, think of the, um, I don't want to say spoiled nature, but like, but the, the pampered nature of what your average meat eater host, right. Gets to experience in, in relation to what every other regular Joe outdoorsman gets to experience, right? They get covered tags, you know what I mean? Like they've, they've probably been on more sheep hunts than anyone else. Um, <clears throat> you know, sick black-tailed deer. I mean, they, they have a private equity company that funds all of their operations so they get to fly around on, you know, on company dime and hunt for some of the best game in the world. Not just here in America, but like anywhere, you know, so like Alaska, um, which I know is still in America, but it's still a huge big games spot. Um, you know, New Zealand, I mean, hunting Neil guy down in, down in Texas, which is a big one. Um, you know, hunting, uh, dull sheep, big horn sheep, you know, you name it. And I think the only thing they haven't done yet is really like go to go on an African hunt on meat eater. So for those same people to sit there and say, oh, there's too many new people hunting white tails in Michigan. Like that's just r- ridiculous to me. <laughs> like, I don't understand. I don't It's, I mean, it's just beyond the pale. Like, I don't, I don't even know what else to say about it beyond that. It's just beyond the pale for them to, I mean, especially considering, you know, let's dig a little deeper into the, into 
the advocacy efforts of the mediator crew, the entire mediator crew, all the major hosts, um, you know, Cal, Yannis, whatever, all get involved in the backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, and then the, whose entire, you know, premise is the hashtag keep it public, hashtag public landowner, um, you know, outdoors is for everyone mantra. But, you know, when you, when you put the pedal to the metal, you know, like we can talk about the whole green decoy argument another time, but like, I just don't know how you jive saying that we need to stop recruiting people because there's too many people on, on public land and being an actual born and bred bona fide celebrity public land. Kind of an elitism that says you can only hunt one way. You can only fish one way and deviating from it. You're not a real hunter. And sometimes you do see that with BHA types. I think that's pretty objective. Uh, we, you see it on social media. Sometimes some of the rhetoric from some of these folks, that's not to say I would impugn all BHAers of this, but sometimes you do see among some of their members um, a little bit of that rhetoric. And that does sometimes seep into meat eater, I believe. And going back to the piece where he was saying something to the effect of only if you've hunted with your dad, you should be allowed to hunt. Like that completely takes away the crux of hunter recruitment efforts, everything that they have stood for, Meat Eater, uh, their partnerships with different organizations. So yeah, this piece is so confusing to me. Like I want to offer like a concise criticism of it. I don't want to anger people or get like hate mail <laughs> or something because they'll say, well, because of your politics, of course, you're going to say this, but it's like, it's, it's not because of politics. I think I've seen so many progressive outdoorsmen and women actually equally angered by this piece too. Um, a lot of people caught off guard. I have a friend who is a member of one of the first nations, uh, native American tribes, and she was so disappointed. And I think she leans more left politically, but she was completely caught off guard by this piece. And she was like, I just spoke to one of their people and I'm just so caught off guard by this article. Like it's, it's infuriating. And so what did he say? He said, um, rather than seeing R3 as philanthropic, I see it as undemocratic and rude. No pro R3 group has ever asked if you wanted to encounter more hunters when it feel, despite that being the blatantly obvious consequence of R3. Instead, they either assume you're okay with increased hunter pressure or worse, they don't care what you think. Either way, we're, they're fine letting their R3 compromise your hunting. I recently quit a board of a major hunting nonprofit over this. And he said, it's bewildering that consequences for hunting pressure are absent from the R3 discussion. Even the movement's own surveys show pressure is reducing hunter satisfaction. And he says... Um, yeah, let families and let fam friends and family recruit the next generation hunters. That model has worked since the beginning of time. And he talks about the groups you should support. But yeah, he said something to the effect of like, only if you've hunted with your dad, you could go into hunting, which, yeah, it, it makes no sense. Like, I really think in, in the maybe deep at the heart of this, this was probably to generate clicks and some faux outrage, like, uh, tactics that they criticize a lot of people of some, some people at meat eater criticize others of or some of their supporters 
criticize others of. So I'm like, why are you engaging in divisive tactics when you have a brand that unifies people, brings people together over a shared love of hunting? Like, and, and they're free to communicate this perspective. I'm not silencing them or calling for their cancellation by no means, because it would be, it would be really unhealthy to not be able to freely criticize this or for them to freely publish this. They're in the right to do this, but I, I really don't know what it accomplishes. Like, I, I believe that you can simultaneously publish this, but I still think you're, you're allowed to be subjected to criticism. That's the beauty of living in a free society like the United States. Oh yeah. I mean, and look, there's a couple things to unpack there, right? So first, where's this false equivalency coming from where Matt says that, you know, that recruiting your friends and family to be hunters isn't part of R3? Um, that's totally part of R3. It's like a major component of it. Um, so I, I don't understand why he would just assume that this is all like, you know, that, it, that it's all slick marketing campaigns. Um, that's doing it. And then uh, on top of that, like Meteor is again, a billionaire owned major hunting lifestyle brand. So like, it's a weird place to complain in my opinion about slick marketing campaigns that make hunting cool. Um, when they engage in it themselves. Oh, more than, more than R3 does. R3 doesn't have the funding that Meteor has. Um, they just, got like a hundred million dollars or something like that um and they're on netflix which is like the number one streaming platform in human history so like i don't understand why where where the logic comes in that like r3's pittance funding is what's driving hunter recruitment around the nation and by extension matt matt Rinella's supposedly bad season on public land and then look, let's also address the elephant in the room, which is the, you know, he kind of hinted at it um, when he said that um, the R3 movement's own um, own uh, polls are showing that uh, hunter satisfaction is diminished by too much hunting pressure. Anybody who's ever had a bad season, I'll say it again, is going to say that it has to do with something other than the fact that they just had a bad season, right? They're going to say that, you know, I missed because I bumped my scope. I mean, I've, I'm guilty of this. I've done it. Um, you know, like, but eating tag soup is just part of hunting period. Like you're never going to just walk out into the woods and blast, you know, a 12 point, you know, a white tail that scores 150, 160 you know, like sometimes uh, you got to eat tag soup or you can, sometimes you got to make that decision of whether you're going to um, shoot that basket eight or let them walk. You know, like that's all, those are all ethics that are that are deeply personal for the hunters. Yeah, I think sometimes you have to swallow your pride and I, I'm in no position to judge or to cast stones on people because I am new to hunting. But like if even me, someone who's new to hunting can even swallow my pride, get tag soup. I think anyone can, <laughs> if that's the, the case, like I said, I don't know. I mean, maybe your theory is correct. I think they want to generate some enthusiasm for clicks, clickbait. They are maybe bitter about having uh, people siphon away funds from them. I don't know if it's personal, financial, whatever the hell it is. 
but it certainly got a lot of people talking um, with respect to that. And I think, yeah, this type of discouraging of people, I mean, oh, only like people who have like a vested interest or handing down of land or handing down of hunting traditions, they can only participate. So what litmus test do we all have to pass now going forward? Like, because like when you write an authoritative piece like that, you're usually trying to enact change. I mean, like, I hope they would never advocate for something legislatively. And also like, because we're paying these fees and license fees, shouldn't our state agencies be implementing programs to continue the replenishment of conservation dollars? I mean, we, we pay taxes, we pay excise taxes too on these sporting goods. So shouldn't we put our agencies to work by actually doing something rather than wasting that money on something else? I'm perfectly fine with them being an organ of conservation dollars working on recruiting people, because if they're not doing that, like, what are they standing for? So with agencies like that, their, their function as an entity of government. And I think those of us who support limited government can agree with this. I mean, their function as an entity of state government is to be good stewards of our dollars, to implement good programs, to replenish, keep traditions, keep things alive and work to the benefit of constituents. Like, I think that, I think that the, look, there's an argument to be made, and this is the only salient point, really, in my opinion, from the article, that of buying more, uh, buying and preserving more land or doing other habitat uh, projects that help, um, you know, create increasing game numbers for hunters. That said, again, you look at most species, and I don't think that there's really many threatened um, game species in America, you know, like turkeys are doing fine in most areas, you know, like I just, I struggle with where, where this like magic, like, and, and let's be honest, a lot of animals get used to the pressure anyway, you know, like for instance, people say it all the time, uh, moose around here where I'm at in Alaska, the ones that are in people's neighborhoods are a little bit less, that hasn't been my experience, because I've been charged a couple times, but um, but they say that, that moose in people's neighborhoods are less aggressive than ones out in the wild. Um, or, you know, like, I mean, deer get used to people's um, vehicles, deer get used to people's scents and stuff like that. So, like, just it, to, it just doesn't hold water. People are meat eater evangelists, I would say. And I would bet many people who follow that show religiously are very, very disappointed um, with the rhetoric that came out of this piece. I don't think they're going to cancel or forego watching or listening or reading or consuming their content. But I think people will think, well, maybe our idols, maybe the people we really look up to, are they consistent? Are they reliable? And that complicates, I mean, putting a level of trust onto them. And this is not just simply them, but anything, you know, we know this from politics. Like when people start to reveal themselves, I think it's, uh, it's crazy, you know, what, what happens and you have to come to grips with like, you're not going to agree with everyone. People will disappoint you, um, even in the outdoor industry world. So, I mean, does this perhaps challenge meat eaters dominance, like maybe creates openings for others um, where people can think that, you know, maybe we don't have to always 
listen or watch this programming. I mean, people have free will to do whatever they want, support it or against it. I'm fully in belief of that. But do you think, I don't think there's like going to be an exodus from people consuming meat eater, but maybe people will have second thoughts about maybe putting their trust entirely in what some of their commentators say. Yeah, I think it really damaged their brand. I mean, I'm going to be honest on that front. You think so? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, from what I saw online, most of this is colloquial, right? But like from what I saw online, there was a lot of a lot of rage uh, against that article. And not just that, you know, like, <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of a culmination um, that, I mean, started, you know, a little over a year ago where, you know, like I said, um, Giannis Boutelis, uh mentioned the, you know, floated the idea of a of a lottery system tag draw for floating on the river. Um, that was ridiculous, you know. Um, like so, these fringe <clears throat> kind of um, elitist ideals just kind of become more, more and more, um, more and more prevalent in the movement and it's in the meteor brand. And it's weird because you know, again, like this is a show that's you know, some of its most loved episodes are like when Steve takes out his, you know, um, members of his production crew and other staff who uh, have never hunted before and takes them hunting. So like, again, like how do you on a, on a website platform that actively advocates for the, for the recruitment of new hunters, I don't understand why you would use that to then turn around and say, no more new hunters. It could be kind of like the get off my lawn quip. <laughs> I don't know. Or I think this unfortunately happens with some people who are like public land advocates, I'm not saying it's fully representative of everyone writ large in that camp. And I'm not denigrating them. I like all forms of hunting. Like I've mentioned, and I'm fully a backer of, of any type of hunting, as long as you do it in a kosher manner, ethically, et cetera. But I think um, some of them think that they're entitled, their opinion is better than everyone else's because they are more refined. Maybe they're more educated. And that kind of rhetoric is off-putting when you have people saying, well, I'm going to corner this market and I'm going to be the de facto leader. And unfortunately, this sometimes happens with decentralized causes and movements uh, where there's really no appointed leader, you have multiple factions, and sometimes people like their little feet dumps, and they like to dictate what is and isn't acceptable. Even though I would say most things are pretty acceptable uh, in the hunting sphere, from what I've read anecdotally, researched, etc. And so I think we have a lot of people who want to dictate what is right and what is not right, and that feels so much division. Like I just want to go out to nature. I don't really care where you stand. Like, just leave me alone. Don't bother me. Don't harass me. Like I, I, we're laissez faire about this. Like do whatever you want. We don't care. Like as long as you're not harming anyone, I think kind of a libertarian philosophy comes here too. like be whatever you want to do. Like be a hunter that you aspire to be like one is not better than the other. If you have opportunities to do both, go do them. Like what, nothing is stopping you. This is the United States. Like, thank God we're not like the Soviet Union where you had to actually be wealthy or connected to some Politburo communist person to have access to hunting and fishing land. If, if you were lucky to even get it from what my dad would tell me about hunting and fishing in the old country. So like, I really, uh, it's like people focus on the idiosyncrasies that don't matter. 
like, I'm so tired of this. And I hate that we have to revisit this all the time, but (laughs) I figure we air it now and be done with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing to struggle with, you know, and I think what hunting's tending to suffer from a little bit here is a little bit of virtue signaling. You know, a lot of people are just kind of trying to separate themselves from like the lowest common denominator, you know, and I think that that ends up, um, I'm actually writing a piece about this for the MRA's Hunters Leadership Forum, um, where, you know, people are just, people are focusing on, you know, distancing themselves from something that makes people angry. So whether it's hunting African animals, oh, well, I'll hunt a deer, but I would never hunt an African animal. And um, Robbie at Blood Origins actually talked about this, I think, on your on, mm-hmm. on your guys' episode where, you know, what's the difference? And I, I think he asked the question, what is that, what is the difference between hunting a, you know, eland in Africa and hunting a whitetail here in America? Nothing is the difference, is the, is the actual factual answer, um, because they're both, you know, very healthy populations of animals that, you know, that need to be managed. Um, the only difference is just this weird, like, virtue signaling, like, you know, I want to, I want to protect my little corner of hunting because I don't want to give up whitetail. So I'll say, no, 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 people shouldn't be able to do that. But what people fail to understand, in my opinion, is how short-sighted that is as a strategy. Because if you start giving up, you know, if you got dominoes, right, and you start knocking one down, what happens to the line of dominoes? The line just keeps going, knocking down one after the other. So once they get rid of the lowest common denominators, like you know, big five hunting and trapping and the stuff that's like, quote unquote, unpopular among the general public, which it's not unpopular among the general public. It's just a very vocal minority. Um, what happens then? And they're like, well, and, and we see, I see the posters in New Jersey where they've, got, where they've gained ground. You cannot tell me that they're never going to try and come for deer hunting because they already are coming for deer hunting, you know? Like they're, they think that they can ban these coyote wildlife contests and then what, and then what, then they're going to go after squirrel hunting and they're going to go after high fence and they're going to go after track and they're going to go after, you know, and just all the way down the line until there's no hunting at all. Yeah. That's the real problem. That's, that's one thing. I think this incrementalism you see to erase hunting that that's more concerning to me than, okay, who is accurate who's not accurate or who's the best type of hunter what's the right type of hunting like as long as you're outdoors this is what people have to i think people uh, they need to reassess their priorities (laughs) i think this is uh, applicable all across the board and it's like you focus on this they could raise i mean in politics we see this people nitpick little things and they raise lots of money and dupe people into raising money and you see a little bit of this in the outdoor industry where people take a little outrage and then they just fundraise the hell out of it And like elevating those little controversies, I think to me sets back a lot of the gains that you can make as a movement or an entity or a cause. And I think we have to kind of abandon that, but we do have to come out strongly for just the heritage in general. I totally agree. And that's what I had Robbie talk about on several occasions. I mean, that's what we try to inject here on the podcast and let's move away from this article because I think it it's testy enough <laughs> discussing it. I don't want to make myself more upset by reading or talking more about it, but 
let's talk about maybe kind of our plans for what we want to do sometimes on the podcast. I would love to have you come on and help me guest host co-host, I would say, uh, some, maybe like once a month or so we'll find, we'll refine the details on that, but we're going to try to, you know, do more of these co-hosting things where maybe we could bring on some outside guests for really hot button topics. And I think one issue you want to explore is the 30, 30, and its effects on the fishing community. And we've talked about at length about not only that type of measure proposal being considered, but also whether or not placing wind turbines offshore is actually really conducive for fish migration patterns or conservation efforts. So I think we're not going to shy away from topics like that where it beckons to have a lot of nuance. And and I think we could even similarly explore um, whether or not installing solar panels is good for endangered species. That's another uh, problem that a lot of preservationists are going to be encountering. I saw this in the LA Times about the California condor and how they're going to privately conserve and restore the species anytime a bird in question dies as a result of, I think it was, oh no, this was also wind turbines too, not solar panels. Sorry, solar panels was related to a tortoise, an endangered tortoise. But there are several yeah um, issues where a lot of these environmentalists are going to combat one another uh, over whether you want to promote species conservation or development of kind of more controversial clean energy sources, which sound great on surface. And I'm fine with all of the above personally, um, but there are a lot of costs and there's a lot of land use entailed with both wind turbines and solar panels that people fail to underscore. So are we going to try to inject some of that discussion a bit more on the podcast? Do you think, would you want to do that more? Yeah, absolutely. And about that issue, like what have you researched in your initial research into it? for the fish migration patterns and, and wind turbines. You want to tell people oh. kind of what you're passionate about? Yeah. I mean, um, so wind, wind is, uh, is a hot button issue along the coasts because, uh, as you say, um, you know, there's this huge push for, for quote unquote, renewable, uh, quote unquote, clean energy, um, that, you know, I mean, listen, people are putting the car before the horse on a lot of this stuff. That's what, um, my opinion is, and I think there's a lot of facts to back that up. So, um, and actually the New Jersey Outdoor Alliance um, put together a great white paper on this uh, that we circulated around a couple times. Um, and really there's a bunch of issues that people just, and here's here's the main issue with a lot of these, right? Is that preservationists get it in their head that they want solar panels, that they want wind turbines, whatever. And they will not entertain and or discuss any of the issues with them so they just want to ram them down your throat and that's a that's a problem because a lot of this stuff has to get talked through you know like you said earlier about there needing to be a healthy debate you know there's a bunch of things that are um that are problematic with wind turbines and it's because i don't think people realize how large these things are like a lot of them are as big or bigger than the empire state building so you know take noise and vibratory effects right Noise and vibration are two of the main ways that fish um, use their sensory organs underwater. Sight is not one of their strong suits. So if you're anchoring hundreds of windmills, right, over that are over 800 feet high, um, that's going to make loud noise that's 
that at least on at least on a temporary basis um, will disrupt their movements um, of all kinds of nearby marine life, not just not just fish. Um, so you're talking about whales, um, other marine mammals, um, birds. So uh, and actually, a lot of the preliminary research on pile driving has has actually shown adverse effects on marine animals, stress, anxiety, predatory responses with squid. Um, so while that research was short term, um, once windmills have been firmly anchored, you know, you're talking about continual swooshing noise that, that is created by blades that are over 150, long, 150 feet long. Um, so you're talking about, you know, on each side, that's, that's a 300 foot blade that's, that's continuously, um, rotating over and over, uh, and that's going to create vibrations under the water. Um, so, and because everybody knows the sound travels easy in a water environment. So the long-term effects of that noise on the migration, we don't know that because nobody will study it because everybody's afraid to question, you know, the, the wind industry. Industry. What about ocean floor habitat? You know, you start talking about 2,000 windmills off just off the coast of New Jersey is their proposed project. Um, and, you know, so what are you talking about there? You're talking about some of the most, some of the most important um, marine habitat in America. You're talking about, you're talking about, and pristine, mind you. You're talking about then, then basically developing over top of it, right? Like, there's no difference in my mind between putting a mini mall on a key piece of whitetail habitat and putting 2,000 wind farms over protected marine habitat. The only difference, in my opinion, is is that the the, the windmill project is bigger. Um, and then on top of that, you're also laying thousands of miles of, uh, of transmission line all the way back to the shore, which is more development, um, which crosses over clam beds that then can't be dredged. Um, and you're talking about uh, electromagnetic fields that then, um, that then, affect how the fish are uh are migrating you know so as most people if you're an angler know um but some of your non-angling um listeners might not know um when when fish migrate they use something that's called a lateral line to that um that's an or, a special organ that they have that allows them to use um magnetism to help them navigate right because if you're ever scuba diving underwater, you'll, you'll understand that if you look in any direction, it's always the same. It's not like they have, you know, um, sun or, any, you know, other things like that to help them. So you're talking about pelagic species, like key, key commercial and recreational species that are going to be struggling because of this. You're talking about tuna. Um, you're talking about all types of sailfish. You're talking about sharks. Let's not even get into, like, I mean, where are the Save the Whales people? Hmm. Uh, that's what I want to know, you know? I think it's so important and it may bring us some scrutiny. Um, and I've had people who support oil or uh, solar and went on and actually had a, I have a great contact out of South Dakota who is very even keeled about his support for solar. He doesn't push anyone to do it. He still recognizes the importance of oil and gas to back up solar panels and some of this newer technology. So we don't have entire, I'd say legions of opponents, like even among solar and when we do have allies 
I think even still. Um, but yeah, as a technology writ large, like with these wind turbines, yeah, there has to be a lot of discussion relating to them. Oh yeah, I, I agree 100%. And you know, it's just, there has to be an honest debate on this stuff in my opinion. Otherwise people are just going to dig their heels in and, and just believe what they want to believe, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Cody, where can people connect with you? All right. Uh, well, you can find me online um, on Twitter at MCLAUGH19. Find me on Instagram at MCLAUGH1985. And then uh, you can find me on Facebook. But I'm pretty private about this stuff. So uh, it's better to connect with me on uh, Twitter if you want to see me take down uh, liberals and Instagram if you want to see pictures of my foster dog and moose. How is that going? Do you think you're going to be matched with him permanently? Is he going to not stay with you? What's the, I think that's the final thing I want to ask you. (laughs) Um, You know, Stormy's a good dog um, and whether he stays with me or not, I think he's going to make someone a very good companion. Um, I just had to work through some personal issues with regard to how often I travel. um, Cause I don't think it would, you know, at the moment, I just, I want to make sure that whatever decision I make is in the best interest of the dog at the end of the day. All right, Cody, thank you again for joining the podcast. We will definitely, I think, do and partner on some podcast episodes coming up should our schedules permit it and uh, keep this going. But keep me posted and stay safe in Alaska. And thank you so much for coming on to share your thoughts on some of these current events. All right. Thanks for having me, Gabby. Thanks for listening to this week's episodes. As promised, although I am delaying the release just because I want to time the Florida Everglades extended interviews with the release of my forthcoming Conservation Nation video or videos. We're going to space out a few of the videos, but we will mass release all the audio over the course of maybe two to three days. So bear with me. Those are coming very soon, I promise. And we will have some more interviews coming now that it's April. We have a lot of exciting things happening. A lot of news is breaking. I will be having a very exclusive interview sometime in the middle of this month with a leading U.S. senator who is really great on these wildlife issues, so you don't want to miss that. And as we get closer to the date, maybe I'll reveal the day before the episode's release, but a lot of exciting guests are coming. If you want to come on the show and have an interesting perspective, shoot me a message, DM me on social media, and we will try to make something work if we have some interesting things to discuss. But anyway, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor guest announcement. Also, check us out on any podcast provider. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure to hit subscribe, listen to some past episodes, and leave those five-star reviews. Those will go a long, long way. And if you're tired of just hearing the same podcasts and you want, let's say, other podcasts like mine to break through the cycle or the monopoly that some of the bigger media entities have, just share the podcast. That's all you can do and get the word out. I think there are a lot of us and and the podcast market in this niche is very saturated so it's, it's sometimes hard to break out but there are many deserving podcasts hopefully ours included that deserve your listenership so if you want to break the norm get more content out there just share just download encourage your friends to check us or other similar podcasts out and i'll put out a list of great podcasts for you guys to listen to and to also check out as well. There's so many. There's Cast and Blast Florida. There's April Vokey's podcasts. There's The Wild Initiative with Sam. 
and many, many others out there, which I will try to plug in every so once in a while and maybe do some cross-pollination. Thanks for listening to this week's episodes. I know they were all over the place, but we will be back to kind of a Monday, Tuesday, regular programming schedule next week.